the little and lovely crew that is joining us for the second Story Talks live. This is still very experimental from our side. <laughs> so you should have seen us running around minutes ago trying to get everything up running. Um, but soon we're going to start talking to Peder Bonnier, who is with us, but I think he's on off camera right now. Here I am. Hey. Hey. Okay, Most everyone. important question first. Does this mean I'm less popular than Fredrik? No. Uh, no. Uh, it, it, people are pouring in right now. So it's... <laughs> it's um... So, but am I as popular, less popular, and or more popular than Fredrik? Pretty much the same. <laughs> Pretty much the same. Um, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. But I think we'll start now because we've got a couple of people in here and everyone else can see this on demand afterwards. So let's start this. I'm going to adjust my little camera here. So hi and welcome everyone to Story Talks, which is the name we're playing around with right now. Um, this is the second episode of this and me and Heidi, who is the marketing coordinator at, at StoryKit, uh, are really excited about this because we we think it's really a lot of fun and a lot of value for us and for the people who are with us. Uh, and talking about with us, with me today, I have my very assistant uh, uh, CEO, Peder Bonnier. And I think I mentioned starting a podcast with him for the first time seven years ago, which must have been like a month after I started in this company. And finally, he has agreed to be on this. And we are going to talk about social, how it's changed the world, and especially how it has changed the, uh, the marketer's role, which he knows a lot about. And of course, as always, please ask questions. It was very Swedish and quiet in here last time. So I hope you've all prepared a couple of little questions for me and Peder because we both want to sweat a bit at least. Um, but let's yeah, start I'm off sweating with wildly already. So <laughs> just the notion of being recorded live is, is, is enough for me. But yes, I'd love some questions as well. You're just a, a little technical thing. You're touching something that is making your camera okay, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll let swing it a bit. So please don't fiddle around. Okay. Uh, well, let's start out. We need to know a bit more about you and your background. So please tell us. I know you started out as a marketer, right? Yes. Uh, I'm actually, I started out as a economist, uh, kind of a statistical economist by training. And then I, I left university and felt like, um felt like I didn't really know anything more than how to run regressions in Stata 7. And so I wanted to learn something about real life. And that led me to marketing and sales. Uh, so I started at Unilever in well, almost 20 years ago, which feels really weird saying it like that. Um, and then I spent, to simplify, I spent maybe the first half of my career on the I usually say I spent the first half of my career on the buy side of the media equation, so buying advertising of different sorts. And then I spent the second half of my career on the sell side of the media equation, meaning selling advertising uh, of, of different sorts. 
um, until 2018 when we started working with this company, which is a software company, and really is on neither side of the advertising equation for the first time in my career. So um, that, that's very, 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 very briefly where where I've been. But when you started out at Unilever, how how did you perceive the role, the marketer's role back then? Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess this is um, this is um, I, I guess this is what we're going to talk about today. I mean, yeah, I, I, I said I, I think the way I describe this transition is that marketing then and and to a significant degree still. I mean, and I guess that's part of the problem as well that that this this change is, is taking way too long for way too many companies. But but I, I think I think marketing then was a highly I, I usually call it it was a highly proactive practice. So we would know very long in advance what type of communication we were going to have. Um, and that would be planned around a set of very proactively planned kind of campaigns. Uh, and with campaign, I mean that they were predetermined in time. So you would know that between week X and week Y, there would be a campaign uh, and that would center around a product feature or a brand messaging or uh, be very tactical or something like that. But it, 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 and we would have that plan laying out maybe 12 to 18 months in advance. So I would know at this point, and you will shiver when you hear this. So <laughs> I, I would know at this point what, you know, what the calendar would look like more or less until the fall of 23. Uh, which obviously then is 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 very different from what I know today about the uh, marketing that that you're doing every day. So, uh, so it was a kind of a highly proactive practice. It was campaign driven. These campaigns we would do for the brands that I was working on, and and that surely is different today. We would do maybe three, four campaigns a year, and remember this was in two thousand and three. So. All of these campaigns, if you were a significant brand that the company was investing in, uh, would be centered around a linear TV ad campaign. So there was a linear TV purchase um, in you know all the commercial channels in, Nord in the Nordics, uh, where uh, we would have a kind of a, a predetermined target reach and frequency, and the whole kind of messaging would be centered around the creative work that we did or received from an international office into that specific campaign. And out of that, then would we would create, or there would be already created, or we would create um, a, 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 a significant number of derivatives, either for outdoor or print, or, you know, what I was working on mostly was banner ads, so display ad advertising. Um, um, and and um, but but they would would usually be centered around this central kind of thirty second uh, TV spot, and with we so I said I said we would create. There wasn't really anyone in the marketing department creating stuff, so agencies would be doing all of the work, uh, all of the production work, and the marketing department was staffed with people with kind of my competency, so not really competent doing any type of creative work, but uh, writing copy or like treating images or doing stuff like that, but rather like it was a, 
marketing was a, it's, it, you know, if I, if I, if I was mean, I, w- I would say it was a purchasing function. Mm-hmm. It was a, a function that was centered around planning and purchasing creative services and, and media, essentially. Um, I don't know why, why that's mean. There's nothing wrong with being a purchaser, but, uh, but that, 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 that was the way we kind of, um, we, we worked. Can I just just ask you, because you're talking from a Unilever point of view, and that's a huge company and was back then. uh, What did smaller or medium companies do back then as marketers? Yeah, so they didn't have Facebook by then. I think it's a a good question. It's like, I I think the transition had already begun, this transition that hopefully we'll get to if I am a little (laughs) bit more succinct. because I remember I, I, I ended Unilever, the, 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 sorry, I, the year I entered university, I left university. Uh, one of my friends also went to marketing, but mm. she went to work for eBay. Oh. And I went to work for Unilever and we didn't see each other for you know, a year or two. And then we had, we grabbed coffee and we like compared notes to what were, you know, what, what's your day like kind of, and they were nothing the same. Right. So I think there were companies that were kind of digital first or not centered around these kind of legacy media distribution that still worked in a way more kind of reactive, iterative kind of way where production then becomes wildly more important. We'll get to this. Um, but I think most companies, uh, you know, were, were centered around these like pretty significant media buys. And if you look at B2B, it was similar, right? So it wasn't linear TV then. It was the huge trade fair in Frankfurt or, you know, you would, you would do like a, a four major issues of a custom publishing magazine that you would send out to your customers. Like it was all centered around these pretty expensive or extremely expensive uh, distribution systems where the distribution was wildly more expensive than the creative production. And that's why that's that, you know, that's that's why um that's why the system worked the way it, it did. Um so you know so back to, to Unilever we couldn't really even I mean I, I remember I, I was going to produce a you know I don't know the word for this in English but I always give this example in, in Swedish it's called a hullevippa. Do you know what a hullevippa is in English? Do you know what a hullevippa is? I think it's uh, probably the some kind of a price tag on the, no? Yeah, yeah, but, but it's not a coupon. It's just like a thing that comes out of the shelf at the retail store saying like new scent for the like detergent or like new formulation. Formulation is maybe not an English word either. Okay, whatever. Uh, but but I couldn't even produce one of those, right? We didn't have people who could actually like make a hulvipa. You call the agency, you, you ask them to produce it. So so we really had no in-house production. And and this all meant that that every creative unit that we would produce was widely expensive. Mm. Right. So an a, 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 a TV commercial could cost hundreds of thousands, you know, some cases if it was original production in the millions of crowns, right? So extremely expensive production, but that didn't really matter. So that sounds really strange, but it didn't really matter. Uh, Of course it mattered. So, okay, I know I'm going to get pushback on all of these things, but in the grander scheme of things, it didn't really matter because you amortize that creative production over a wildly larger distribution buy, 
Mm -hmm. Right. So if you spend one, one million or one unit, one whatever, on making the ad, you would spend 15, 20, 25, 30 times more on buying the actual media space. And so out of the total campaign cost, distribution was a way larger component than creative production. And so becoming efficient in your production wasn't that important. What was important was that once you went live with the campaign, it was good, right? Or yeah. at least it, you weren't wrong, right? I, 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 when I'm in a fouler mood than today, I say like, you know, traditional advertising optimizes for not being wrong, right? So the, the most important thing is when you put the push the distribution button, when you start the campaign, you know that you're not going to fail, right? Yeah. And so a huge amount of cost, like way more than I've ever seen in any other company I worked in was put into market research, uh, secret shoppers, uh, focus groups, uh, trial testing campaigns in smaller geographies before you bring them to large geographies. You know, like you would do a lot of things to make sure, you know, you'd send the material up and down the hierarchy. So like everyone was bought in so that it was really no one's fault. It was bad, right? Everything was really optimized for knowing when you went live that something would work. And that made total sense because the media buy was so expensive. So you couldn't afford being wrong, right? You'd blow the entire budget on, you know, something that you were, you know, where you were obviously wrong. It, it didn't maybe incentivize enormous creative risk-taking, but it did incentivize making uh, advertising that worked. And so I, I, I think that, that was kind of the way that, that, that marketing function that you deliver at a very high level. And I, you know, I say that with the, the, the utmost respect for this organization that when I was there, it was the largest media buyer in the Nordics mm. uh, and perhaps they still are, I don't know. Um, and, and obviously probably one of the most sophisticated, you know, marketing companies in the world, essentially. So, so um, yeah. But this brings us to something that happened in 2013, a huge change that you pretty much just was standing in the middle of and could see it in front of your eyes. Tell us about that. No, exactly. So, 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 so I really think it started in 2000, in, in the nine, end of the 90s, right? It really started with digital. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's fascinating about digital and what was fascinating is that you don't have to be done, right? So you launch a website and if something doesn't work, you can change it. Yep. And then, you know, you can keep doing that to make things better as they are live, essentially, right? It's not the structure where you make the ad or the video or the, you know, TV ad, you edit it and cut it, you post-produce it, you like do everything till it's done and then you send it to the media agency and start like airing it on TV. Then it's really hard to change something, right? You're not, but with digital, it's, it's this constantly iterative process. So I, I think that's that's the eBay story here, right? I mean, it's a it's a difference between my job and and my friend's job who 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 was at eBay it was that they were working on this in this ethos of continuous optimization where we really couldn't because we were stuck in these three four month cycles that had a due date, a campaign date. Yep. 
but obviously, I mean, I, I think, and, 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 and so, and the internet went through these three phases, right? So the first phase was this portal phase where the way to discover something online when you woke up in the morning was surfing to a major portal in Sweden, it very quickly became the tabloids. But, uh, but uh, in, in the US, it was obviously sites like Yahoo or AOL. Um, and these sort of portals existed everywhere. It was a way, it was a gateway to the internet, right? It was a way to start to find content, find things that were relevant to you. Uh, and that were more or less highly curated or edited by, you know, a personal human being. Then obviously, you know, the smart people uh, in uh, the US invented a way better way to discover uh, relevant content on the internet, which was to search for stuff and they get relevant results that you could click on. Um, and uh, already then, uh, there was this fascinating notion that anyone who did, who answered search queries in a relevant way, independent on if you were a commercial actor, like I want to sell screwdrivers, or if you were an editorial actors, I want to talk about the best screwdrivers on the market. Or if you were a perfectly normal human individual who likes screwdrivers and likes writing about them, right, in a blog, right, it, it, independent on that, distribution started becoming democratized, meaning that if your story on screwdrivers was the most relevant and the very best story available on the market, you would get the search results, like you would get the traffic, you would end up on top. And then, um, you know, obviously, because the other side also wanted to make money, they figured out ways of promoting your results or, you know, buying ads to, to get more distribution if you could pay for them. Uh, but still, there was this highly organic component to search where if you were really good, if you had a really, really great result, you would get the traffic without paying anything. Hmm. Just by nature, what, what you had produced had quality. And, and quality here, you know, in the, in the early days, it was highly gamed. There was kind of technical SEO type arbitrage play. And then over time, you know, as the search engines became better and better, um, quality started to really mean quality. Like, is this a meaningful search result for me? And it meant that anyone could get that distribution and you didn't have to pay anything, right? You didn't have to go to a, to a large, to someone who had distribution, meaning a newspaper or a TV channel and say, we want to, we want a free ride on your eyeballs here, right? You could, you could attract the eyeballs yourself just from, from being good, right? Mm -hmm. From being relevant. And so I was working uh, in the early kind of 2010s. Uh, at a, a large magazine site network in Sweden doing interest publishing, uh, which obviously was incredibly well suited for search because for most of these queries, we had decades and decades of great content that would answer those, right? So just by being good at surfacing that and, and figuring out way to ways to surfacing it well, we could really get the, a, a large part of that traffic. And then in, in 2012, and, and, and that meant that we also had essentially every Swedish browser, more or less, on one of our sites every month. So most of the Swedish internet traffic kind of passed through our network at some point over 30 days. 
I exaggerate, but just slightly, right? And then it meant so we had a right, really good view of what does Swedish internet traffic look like. And very quickly in 2012, we started to see that change. And we had seen changed over time, like when the new browser became popular, you started seeing the share of that browser kind of increasing. And, you know, if some new device went on sale, it was very clear that we got more traffic from those devices and stuff. But we started seeing shifts that I had never previously seen. Um, and, 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 and the major impetus for that was, was social and mobile, right? So today that sounds <laughs> fully uh, uh, non-controversial, uh, uh, but I think we went mobile from you know it's low single digits to 65, 70% in a matter of eight months or so. Yeah. And so iPhones been had been around for a number of years. So it wasn't really the release of mobile browsers. It was then Facebook had decided to start surfacing content uh, more uh, prominently in their newsfeed. It was first the release of the newsfeed, meaning that you got this curated stream of content from stuff that you follow. And then it was it was the idea that that newsfeed got populated by uh, by a wider um, a wider set of content than just your friends. And so this changed, uh, th this kind of democratized content distribution once again, because now not only did you have to do this pretty arduous um, um, time uh, re requiring task of creating really great answers to searched for questions, because that market by then had matured and there was high competition on you know, great phrases. And if you looked at a, you know, if you looked at a significant Swedish search query, usually at the time we used kladdkaka, it's like a chocolate fudge cake, which was the most searched for word on Swedish food internet at the time, and probably still is. It was like a highly competitive term where people had bought out all the domains. There was kladdkaka.nu, kladdkaka.se, kladdkaka.com, like all the domains were bought out. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of highly optimized recipes online that kind of tried to get the traffic. So it was... Search was still democratized, but very competitive. Social was like a wide open playing field, right? And anyone could win, right? Any Anyone who did really great storytelling uh, could win. And so we, 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 when we started Kit, which was the company that was the impetus for the company that we now sit and talk within, um, that was very much the impetus, right? So, so when distribution is no longer a gatekeeper, right? The best story will win independent on who posts that story independent on their following count or their brand or their whatever, right? What's great? Like, what, what are the opportunities within that kind of distribution system? And then obviously over time, that market also matured, competition also increased and, and, and the social platforms discovered that we can actually uh, get paid to distribute um, not so great or not, not as not content that maybe wouldn't have made it organically, but with the big difference that the, uh, the cost for distribution, distributing your content in social would be highly correlated to the quality of that content. Meaning that if the content 
it was easy to distribute. It would cost very little to reach a large number of people. Whereas if it was terrible content that no one really wanted in their feed, like it would cost a lot to put it out there, right? So the, 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 the algorithm of trying to figure out what are people really wanting to consume from within their feed also affected distribution costs. So these, these became kind of a reinforcing system of needing to produce better content and allowing for anyone really to do that. Okay, that, that was a way longer answer than, than you wanted, I guess, but anyway. <laughs> No, but I mean, what, and what does this mean for content production? Yeah, so a- I, I, apart from I, apart from needing to do the right content here to really know, I mean, we're back when it comes to target group. It we're back to really knowing your target groups. But when it comes to product production, what changed? Yeah, so I think this entire kind of and try to tie this together now. So the entire this entire you know journey from early kind of internet being able to optimize real time into the system where we are now where distribution your total distribution for the content that you produce for a brand is widely correlated to the quality of that content but also to the volume of what you're producing i think really changed everything for marketers and communicators i mean i i, I don't really think that that any of the processes or systems organizational systems or routines that you apply to three TVC campaigns per year apply to you know winning the feed if you will i think these are two completely separate games and i think if you look at at market i mean I look at your organization right so I, it's good to look at yourself right so mm-hmm. look at your organization i mean if if i asked you to run three major tv campaigns per year i mean i i assume i mean you might be a total savant here but like i i assume that you would have no idea where to start right i mean like it's it has nothing to like it has nothing to do with what we do that we call marketing right or even like let's do a custom magazine for like anything that really required the the use of external agencies for production is just totally alien to your DNA, right? Mm. And I think that's, and, and I think it's the same if you look at B2C. So if you look at really modern progressive B2C marketing companies, it, it, it's very similar, right? So what's happened is that you've gone from this proactive world to you know, what I meanly call a reactive word. That, that, that word has a negative connotation, but it really isn't. I didn't really don't mean it in a negative way. What I mean is that you're publishing, that what you publish tomorrow will be reactive both to what happens tomorrow, but also to what happened today, right? It's, it's this continuous like iterative um, optimization game of learning from what you're doing. Um, and it, so, so, so it's gone kind of from proactive to reactive. It's obviously gone from like a single, you know, dominant channel, TV ads and linear TV, to everywhere. You can't reach your, you can't reach your reach and frequency targets in a single channel anymore, right? You need all of them. So that puts incredible demands on on just the breadth of your production. Uh, there's also this shift from campaign to always on, right? So you, it's ridiculous to say, I'm going to be on Instagram three times next year, once in February, (laughs) and then again in the summer, and then maybe we'll do a brand campaign in November, right? I mean, like this is just obviously not how these would be fun to see. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you laugh, right? But this yeah. is the way that most marketing is still planned. So I mean, like, you should just like get. You should just also remember that it it it's not. I, I I'm not talking about like, you know, the 19th century here and like the distant past. I'm I'm still talking about now more or less, right? And so you've also gone to this always-on situation, which obviously means that you have to produce every day, right? So you have to publish, keep publishing, keep producing every day. And everyone understands that if you produce not for one channel, but for 10 channels, and you don't produce three times a year, you produce 300 times a year, you know, that's exponentially more units of production. And so if you want to do that, and this might be a subtle point, but if you want to do that on marginal cost, meaning that every unit costs you something more, so one more thing is associated with one more cost, like that will never work. You have to take everything into, well, you know, to average cost, meaning that you have to have it on your payroll, because then I can say, Yona, you know, you should really do two more things today. And you will say, yeah, uh, I know we should. And that's not, those two things, those two particular units don't cost anything else. Then obviously it's the step production because at some point you don't have enough resources, you have to increase your average cost. Um, okay, so so that means that 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 and that has led to this whole in-house trend, right? So you 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 move a lot of production from agencies to your own organization to get out of this marginal cost argument. But it's not enough if your culture and strategy and 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 production system is still similar to what you had before. So internally, I always say this, I hope it's true. Now I have you in the room. I, I don't want to <laughs> be called out, but like I always say, I have never, I don't think I have a single time seen a piece of marketing material, organic or purchased that Heidi or you have produced before you've published it. Well, I don't think we've been be, in a situation be where you, you've come to me and said, this is what we're thinking, uh, you know, right? right? Which in, in terms yeah, I of- have, I have given it to you. And then afterwards you said I didn't read it. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, and, and the reason for that is because the risk in this world, in this production system, it, when we're, is not to be wrong anymore. It, wrong is costless. Hmm. If you, I produced a shitty post to promote this webinar, right? So- what did it cost me? It cost me the 10 minutes to produce the post, right? Which was afterwards, maybe I could have spent better, but you know, it's not that My time is not that costly. So that's fine. And apart from that, nothing else, right? I mean, I posted it to LinkedIn. It went to died in the graveyard where LinkedIn posts that don't get liked go to die, right? Where billions and billions of LinkedIn posts that haven't been like worth reading go to die before. And, and nothing yeah, well, actually, else. also one important thing there is that being wrong in social is actually important because then you learn. So the next time you'll write a better post. Perhaps. Exactly. So, so, but it's not associated with risk. No. Being wrong is not associated with risk. It's associated, associated with chance. It's, it's associated with opportunity. Exactly. And, yeah. and some, the, the thing that's associated with risk is not publishing enough. Right. So I, I say this and, and I, I often get like uh, uh, this is this is a, somewhere where especially the traditional agency system really disagrees with me, like wildly disagrees with me when I say that volume is in itself uh, incredibly important in this world. 
Like that goes for SEO too. I mean, I would go as far as arguing though, now I'm on thin ice, right? That volume is more important than the individual quality of every individual item, right? Like for, for SEO, the, I think this is fairly clear, like a hundred mediocre articles on the same subject linked together are probably, will probably overperform one single the thing to rule them all article that you've spent years writing, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that people should do bad, poor quality marketing. Like that would be stupid, right? I, I don't think I, I don't think anyone should be purposefully stupid. Good is always better than bad, but volume in itself has value. And when you're stuck in a system where every unit has to be revised or looked at, every you know, people spend millions of crowns on strategy and like strategizing and drawing up plans and the, and no one really spends any time figuring out how should we actually get this shit out in a huge amount of volume over a consistently consistent period of time, time being months and months and years and years, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's really just a waste of money, right? I mean, this is just like strategizing to feel good. And because it's fun, it's like fun to figure out a strategy. It's not that fun to say, okay, so today I'm going to produce another four blog posts, right? Another 50 Facebook posts, right? That That's not, Some of us I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's as cool or <laughs> attractive, right? But it's certainly more valuable. Um. And and I, I still think there's huge arbitrage in this. Like I think most marketing communication departments globally essentially have not at or that, that was mean. So I mean a lot of marketing communication departments out there would have enormous return on thinking very carefully around how do we produce a scalable content production system. Uh, really independent on what the content is for that particular agency. Okay, so now I that, that was that was again maybe I got too excited. So I love it. Did not ask. <laughs> I was actually going to see uh, give you a little break or maybe the opposite. Do we have any questions, Eddie? I haven't seen any so far, but I know that. Uh, uh, maybe there is one in the audience that has a question that we talked about yesterday. It was very interesting. I see one in the chat. I can read it for you, Peder. It's from Alto. Yeah. Is risk-taking okay. more accepted uh, for... A, let me just rephrase myself. Uh, okay, so risk-taking, is it more accepted? Is it the more accepted part of a digital marketer's day today now that you can change it afterwards? I mean, it should be, but I don't know that it always is. So, but, but it should be. And, and, and what the organizations should be thinking about is how do we make that individual um, maybe not take more risk, but feel empowered mm. and have the necessary tools and structures around her or him to make individual independent decisions every day, right? So in our case, this is Heidi, right? Or, or, or you, 
uh, but but let's take Heidi because uh, because Heidi is the one who produces most of the content that we publish to social. I think our job as an organization is to give Heidi the framework for in in which she feels like she can communicate, right? So what type of tonality are we using? What subjects do we talk about? What's our strategy here? What's our content calendar look like, right? And then let Heidi make all and as many independent decisions around every unit that she produces as, pos- as, as is humanly possible, right? Because there are a ton of decisions that is made in producing a client case or a blog post or a um, or a LinkedIn post. There's a ton of decisions around which words do I use, which images do I choose, which uh, tonality suits this target audience. So how do I, you know, should it, this be an interview? Should it be a, a reportage? Should it be a, an explainer? Should it be a list? Like, you know, you, there, there are a ton of editorial choices that are made. And what you want is for that those editorial choices to be made as, as close to the actual production as possible. So provide the tools and the framework and then let this production system work. And this is what I mean by production system. This is a subtle but super important point. It's like, and production system, you could think it's about story kit, right? It's about the software you need to be able to be efficient in these functions, like what social media publishing tool do you need? What CRM do you And I actually think people spend way too much time thinking about that. You know, there's you're certainly not going to be able to create a scalable content production system without you know, a ton of great software, story kit included. But that's not where most organizations uh, miss uh, their targets, right? Most organizations miss this in the organizational system, in the setup they, in the, the way they set this production system up. And I think that's really where the key to dramatically increasing increasing the scale of your production lies. Um, so what is so that? It's surprising. Sorry. What is that? So what would what does companies need to do? Yeah. So uh, I think the first thing is is I hate to call this culture. It's uh because culture feels like it's hard to change. And I actually don't think these things are so hard to change. But 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 okay, let's call it culture then, in terms of being able to trust. So f- f- sorry. First of all, it's roles, right? You have to have someone internally who produces. So you'd be surprised how many marketing, well, you wouldn't, but a lot of people would be surprised how many marketing organizations you go to and you're like, who's the, you know, and there's a strategist X, there's a there's a demand gen Y, there's a like, there are all of these roles in the marketing department. And it's like, but who, who like, who produces the, who produces the content, right? Where's the production person? Who writes the words, right? Mm-hmm. Who chooses the images? And there's no one, right? So, so first of all, you know, that's like done by an agency or, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not clear. Uh, so the first thing is organization, right? You need, you need production people. You need p- people who can write. You need people who are journalists or, uh, or, or copywriters or trained uh, storytellers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second is culture. You need to entrust these people to run an editorial process, right? To figure out what's interesting to write about and to have, you know, reasonable competency in making those stories reasonably interesting. So I, I think that's, and, and, and not like run things through 
proofing in hierarchies that kind of slows everything down, right? The person who writes should really be the person who can also publish. Um, And I think the third thing is, uh, you know, we tend to call it formats. I I, I don't know if format is a... um, is a uh, an actual uh, term here, but but is to figure out storytelling concepts, if you will, that scale, right? So I think about this very much in terms of a magazine. So when you read a magazine, paper magazine, I mean one of these that you've seen in your life if you're over thirty. Uh, okay, that was mean. So I'll take that. Back. We'll edit that comment out. But but no. but. Um, uh, when you read a magazine, you recognize yourself, right? As a reader, you go, ah, you know that in the beginning, there's like a, a, a few pages with the products and, you know, product reviews or something. And then there's, there's the big interview and then there's something in the, like, you know, if you love the magazine, if you read it often, you recognize the structure. Mm-hmm. And that's because they are determined formats. It's like you always, we always have the, you know, the flagship house in the Deco magazine on page uh, 40 to 46. Like it's always a six, six p- page spread. And this means that it's a scalable production system. The editor of that magazine can say, okay, let's do 30 of those, right? Keep them in the drawer and then put them together into some reasonable product over time, right? Mm-hmm. And in digital, suddenly people have stopped thinking about editorial concepts or editorial formats. And, and you instead think that every time you, you make a blog post, it should be something completely new. And that scales very poorly. So I think that the third thing, or if I was at the fourth, I can't remember, is to think about those formats. And it really isn't that hard, right? I mean, most B2B companies the same. It's like it's a customer, it's, well, B2C as well. It's always some sort of testimonial format, right? You want to hear from your customers. They want to yeah. want to let your customers tell your story in some way. Um, and you can format that down all the way down to like, we should tell it in this way, which requires us to gather this information from our clients. You can make this as scalable as possible, right? Uh, or you can leave a lot of room for the person producing or the editor to make those decisions independently every time. And the more room you leave to the person producing it, the less productive you will be, right? Okay. If, if you do, if you're supposed to do a thousand customer reviews per year and you only have one person doing it, it has to be fairly structured yeah. to get to the point where you can actually like churn that out. But that's just structure, right? That's just ex ante work. And you can decide how scalable it should be, but you have to get to this point of, of formats, concepts, templates, whatever we call this, right? And it's different every time. So, so, so I think you also have to go there. And I think that's what, um, that's what uh, you know, an, an agency would call strategy, essentially. And then you put those templates into a plan, right? Mm-hmm. So you put those templates into something that we call a content calendar or a publishing calendar or a marketing plan or you know, some sort of temporal plan. Uh, and you, you fill them in as empty containers. You say, we're going to have three of those every week and two of those every week. But we're not going to know what the three or the two are until, you know, we get there in the calendar. Um, Yeah, so it's not hard than that. That was very concrete, but that's where I think you should be. Yeah, I think that's really true. It seems like this is quite painful for organizations to to do this change. Why do you think it's so painful? 
Yeah, I think it's because uh, it's uh, because of the reskilling issue that we talked about before, right? I mean, yeah. I would not. I would, I would be, I was a really well-suited marketing person in the early 2000s, right? Because I'm a great planner. I, I live in Gantt sheets. I love purchasing, right? I mean, I love doing research. Um, I was a really well-suited marketing person for a marketing department in the early 2000s. I would be useless in a modern day marketing department because I don't write very well. I definitely don't edit well. I uh I can't open Photoshop. Like I don't know if, I don't know how to like edit imagery. Um I, I don't know how to take a quote, like how to take an inter- how to pursue an interview. I don't ask the right question. Marketing has gone from being a planner job to being a producer job. And these skills are not particularly complementary. Like I'm, I'm an econometric. I'm an economist by training, right? Mm-hmm. I, I lived my entire university as in Stata Seven. That's very different from you. I, I don't know if you opened Stata Seven in the journalist school, right? I mean, like, so I don't even know what it is. Exactly. So exactly. So I think <laughs> that this is why it's hard, because it takes a long, long time to reorganize, reskill, re-change, you know, everything changes, right? The people, the skills, the roles, the structures, the routines, the culture, everything changes. And in those systems that are this wildly disruptive, um, yeah, then it just takes a lot of time. But I think also that we feel this, right? Because we are such a tactical solution to this problem, right? At, At some point, you just realize we won't ever be able to produce the amount of video that we need to produce without software. And so you buy StoryKit because that's the best way of solving that problem, right? But you've come pretty far down that insight journey when you get there, right? So we tend to to see the companies who've come the furthest, if you will, on this transformational journey. And there's still, it's just still the very like tip 10% of the iceberg, I think. Uh, I think this is just, you know, a, a major, 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 major trend, and give this twenty more years, and we'll have no, no more Peters left in the marketing profession. Uh, as we need to start rounding up, I, I have always said that you're still a really good storyteller. I've just asked you like four questions, and you're just thinking, I love this. Um, but I was going to ask you on that point. Uh, we're not saying to companies that they should just start throwing spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. I mean, there is still use for the skill sets that you have, like the research, the Gantt sheets, the, so how, where, where, and how do we combine those? Yeah, I I, I think that's true, but why I, why I'm so uh, like, why, why I, why I push this so adamantly hard to the other direction is because that's not what most of these marketing, uh, uh, what most marketing departments are lacking, right? So you're so, not afraid of everyone just starting to do whatever and see what happens. That, that, I, I don't think there's a huge risk for that. But no. I mean, uh, yes, you're, you're right in the sense that modern marketing, if you will, is this combination of edit. Well, you know, the structure that you have in an, in an editorial room, which is very much what we're talking about now, right? Format it harshly or, or heavily 
but don't fill the boxes, right? I mean, the boxes are just continuously filled, right? So the box here will be like the main interview, but the main interview can be a thousand interviews, right? So, um, and the highly proactive practice of marketing, right? What is the story that we need to tell to sell our product, right? Which is essentially what we do, right? So if you go all the way to like, just let's just like, throw spaghetti at the wall you tend to be completely unstrategic right you might you might do audience winning stories right but they don't mean anything for your company or your brand and so that that's also completely useless obviously so it it is this combination of first trying to figure out which are the type of stories that we want to tell but make that job to to the point where they where the container is very rigid and you have trust in the idea and in the container, but where the storytelling itself is very fluent and very, very quick, right? I mean, so so this is this is, I guess, what's what's hard for a lot of, but but it's it's way harder to approach that from the process of being an awesome planner and not being particularly interested in actually making the story than to being really interested in in doing the work so to speak and then like roll it back to are we doing what's right and like how do we put more structure on top of our organization so yeah good i was gonna see with haiti if we have any more questions coming rolling in they're rolling in we have one actually Really oh yeah! If people have to leave. Uh, please do. We can watch this in uh, on demand afterwards. No, but don't. I wanna. No, don't. <laughs> but um, if we could circle back to the thing that you said about being the decision maker and being the publisher, the content producer. We got a question from Sophia. She's asking, "What's your thoughts on optimally dividing the skills between persons in a marketing team? Meaning, is it more important to have one person be multi multi skilled?" within digital marketing, or is it better to have that separated by individuals? Good question. I think it's very hard to do everything that needs to be done. I, I, I think it's very hard to have like all of the skills, like to find these like Swiss army knife type individuals that are great writers or great copywriters or storytellers and are really great at like you know optimizing distribution for example which is or optimizing media buys in the same individual because they are very very different types of work um so you know if i had to choose i mean there are certainly exceptions to the rule here and all of that right my truth is not the truth and so on and so forth but if it, 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 my preference is to uh to 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 generally staff marketing with specialists over generalists so people who are incredibly good at at at, at doing you know what what they do as a, as a trade rather than to, to to have everyone do a little bit of everything because a lot of these things require pretty specialized skills as i said like i would never you know, well, I can't do any of these jobs, right? I can't buy Facebook ads I can't, or LinkedIn ads. I can't write blog posts. I can't, you know, so, so, so I, I do think that, that generally speaking, it's, 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 it's better with specialists over journalists 
but it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a case by case question. Isn't that also a timing case? I mean, coming from a a startup that has grown quite exponentially the last couple of years, uh, there was a time where I had the time and skill sets to do most of the work, but that has yeah. passed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like uh, it's it, it. There's a business reality to adhere to. So I, you know, and, but 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 I, I guess the question is more like, get, okay, so subject to budget, right? <laughs> One budget. Would you rather have five generalists than five specialists, right? Yeah. I would rather have five specialists. Yeah. But but I like that point, and and it's been made in a in a in a in a podcast that I know both you and I have listened to. It's like a way to scale. I think a really pragmatic, great way to scale is to scale with specialization. So first, in our case, Yonna does everything, right? Right, suppose, distributes to us, buys the Facebook ad and so on and so forth. And then you're like, mm, but this part of this, you know, A, it requires a lot of time. It's like a full-time job, just this thing. And also, I'm not doing it incredibly well, right? There are people in the market who can do this much better than I can. So we should hire for that. Once you get to that point, right, it's usually a good indicator of, you know, there's time to bring someone in. Yeah. Um, and and that's so you 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 scale with specialists. Essentially, you scale with specialization. Roles tend to go narrower and narrower, right? In in the sense that you need people who know how to do some one particular thing much better this feels like a totally different podcast by the way so we can we can that's certainly it. do that's, that as well that's the fun thing with questions yeah um well anyways uh this has been so much fun i've heard you talk about this a couple of times before but i never <laughs> this extensively which i loved um and i hope you all that were here did enjoy this too and got some value out of it um we are loving this format so we're going to continue doing it uh, so keep your eyes open and we will have another story talks live for you coming up soon and let's see who our guest will be then but until then thank you Peter, and thank you all of you that have been here see you next time all right thank Bye. you